Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Welcome to another Saturday morning. I am your host, Ashley Frasca, here on Green and Growing. Happy to be with you for the next three hours. Full of guest experts, the show today, I am bringing on a special guest whom many of you have heard on the show before, Clint Waltz from the University of Georgia, the Extension office and campus down in Griffin. How are you this morning, Clint? I'm doing well, Ashley. Really good to have you back. Thank you so much for coming on, and we're going to share some knowledge with folks and answer their questions about turf grasses and lawn care maintenance and all of that kind of thing. And I've always enjoyed the science, and, and grass has been something other that uh, turf grass is just how it's used on home landscapes and professional situations, whether it's ball fields or golf courses or what, uh, it's just the intricacies and then the people. Um, the people early on were the ones. It's, it's a great industry out there. The green industry's got fantastic people in it that really care about what they're doing, whether it's golf course superintendents or sports field managers or commercial lawn care folks and, and that kind of thing. It's just excellent people, great industry. They're trying to provide a service to whoever their clientele is, professional athletes, eight-year-olds running around playing soccer yeah. or, or you know, the average home. So it's, it's a great place to, to work and great people to work with. Uh, University of Georgia's turf program has a long history of, of producing grasses that are used all around the world, literally all around the Tip world. Tough Bermuda, and, right? That comes right from the University of Georgia. It does. That yeah. comes off of our Tipton campus down there. And that's certainly our new one. And that's the one that uh, has got well-documented water conservation uh, properties about it. So it uses less water, even for Bermuda grass, which is a, a very water-conserving species on itself. But Tiff Tough goes even beyond that, and our breeders and our scientists, and you know, I've had a little part in that through the years of, of developing that, that cultivar as well, of uh, getting that out there and such that we can get a, a quality grass out to uh, homeowners and sports field managers and golf courses and, and that type of thing, and actually wind up having a, a positive impact in reducing the amount of water that's being used for, for growing grass. Yeah, that's something we have to think about as, as good stewards of the, the planet as well, is using less resources, right, and being a little more efficient in the landscape. And I wanted to talk to you about that, too. Um, I listened to a podcast recently with John Greeley, who's kind of known as the grass guru, and his take on the use of ornamental grasses and how, you know, that's just really now becoming more and more common. We like our lawns. But he talked about grass ecology, and I really had never thought of that phrase before, but just how to be more environmentally conscious about our lawns. To try to keep up that lawn, you're using water, you're using pesticides, you're using herbicides. I mean, that can be a strain on the environment if not done the right way, right? Absolutely. The stewardship of trying to have grasses that um, and developing grasses that use less water or um, or more competitive against weeds so that you don't have to apply herbicides or have a, I guess I'll throw out a rather scientific word, host plant resistance. Okay. Um, what that means is it's built in genetically that it's, it doesn't get sick. It doesn't get the diseases. And genetically, it, it's predisposed not to be subject to some of the diseases so you don't have to apply fungicides. So our, our breeders and our scientists, um, we are all trying to work towards improving our, our grasses that we put out there that uh, don't need as much of that and are more sustainable and easier to care for. Yeah, nothing's going to be perfect, of course. And Lance Walheim no. joined me last week from BioAdvanced, Clint, and he said something that I really thought a lot about. He said lawn diseases are almost always caused by or made worse by improper care of the lawn. And I kind of thought, 
Huh, that could be. It's like the more we try to combat this problem, the worse we may be making it. So, again, that goes mm-hmm. best to or goes back to best practices up front and strengthening that lawn and making it a lot tougher and stronger. That'll save you time on the backside, right? Absolutely. No, that's that's correct. And using the proper agronomics or proper cultural practices. So doing things like fertilizing at the right time and using the right fertilizers, you, you don't predispose that grass or make it young and tender so it is more susceptible to diseases. Or you don't irrigate at the wrong time such that it's wet. Most of our diseases in turf need about 12 hours of free moisture, ah. uh, either on the leaf or around the crown of the plant. So if you irrigate too early and you move into nighttime, you extend that wet period, so you do uh, risk an opportunity there or provide an opportunity for, for disease to, to take over. So, you know, some of those kind of management practices um, can certainly um, influence, positively influence um, uh, how we wind up controlling our, our, our pests out there. Is it better to irrigate, like if you're just putting seed down or we've gone through a dry it, spell, is it best to irrigate in the mornings? It is. Um, now, if you're doing seed... Uh, and that's happening right now a good bit with tall fescue. thing you have to remember about seed and even sod is that it has no root system. But for seed, let's just talk about that for a minute if we got, if we can, that um, once you start irrigation, um, you're going to have to keep that seed moist and wet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the germination process, the biological process of germination, once it starts, it can't stop. If it stops, the seedling will die. Oh. There is no pause button with uh, seed germination uh, on it. So once you kind of get it wet, it needs to stay wet through the germination process, the whole biochemical germination process. So in those situations, you water in the morning, you water maybe a couple of times through the day just to make sure that seedling stays moist and, and doesn't dry out because if it dries out, it won't go any further. Gosh, that's really something great to think about. And and I'm glad you brought that up. We've got a couple minutes before we go to break here, Clint. But lots of questions for you and I both this time of year about overseeding for tall fescue. And generally, you know, from what I see, October 15th is kind of prime, maybe up until, but you can certainly do it in November. But how do we know when it's too late? What what are we as, you know, inexperienced gardeners? Are we looking at the air temp or the soil temp when that cutoff is too late to seed? Well, with tall fescue, you can kind of see, we'll say it's, it's kind of like buying a garden hose, I guess. You know, you got good, better, and best uh-huh. um, on your garden hoses out there. So I kind of look at tall fescue as a good, better, and best. Uh, the best time to seed is, is kind of between September 15th and let's just say October 15th or November 1. And, yes, soil temperatures are a big part of that. So the warmer the soil temperatures, the faster it's going to germinate. Okay. Um, the faster it germinates, the quicker it puts down a root. It starts to be able to pull up its own water and nutrients. So as we move into, let's just say, mid-November, December, you can put tall fescue out then, but it's going to be slower to germinate because soil temperatures are cooler. Uh, if you seed it, let's just say, uh, September 15th, and soil temperatures are 75 degrees, mm-hmm. you may see tall fescue germinating three to five days. Wow. Not uncommon at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, you move into mid-November, soil temperatures are somewhere down, say, upper 50s or low 60s, and now it's taken 10 to 14 days or 7 to 10 days for it to, to germinate, not 3 to 5. So it's taken longer to germinate. It'll come up. It's going to sit. It's just not going to move quite as as, um, as quickly. You know, that's, that's the better. Yes. <laughs> you can even put tall fescue out in December, January, but it's, it's not going to go anywhere because of those soil temperatures and air temperatures both real rapidly. But you'll get some germination then on it. But uh, fall is the ideal time. Uh, that's, that's the best. 
For those of you yeah. who are like, well, soil temperature, how am I supposed to know that? There's a great yeah. website, again, put out by the College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences there at the University of Georgia. It's just weather.uga.edu, weather.uga.edu. And you can uh, search the soil temperature for your area, and that way you kind of know. Well, we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk to Barbara in Toco Hill about her lawn. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning. What can I use on my fescue to get rid of the nutgrass and the Bermuda? Oh, yeah, that's a problem. The Bermuda is oh. invading the fescue, huh? It is. It is. Really oh. bad. Uh, the Bermuda grass and the tall fescue is, is not an easy – well, neither one of those are actually easy control um, uh, on that one. So the Bermuda grass – in tall fescue, there's there's a chemical called acclaim, A-C-C-L-A-I-M. It is not inexpensive. It is an expensive chemical, and you'll probably need a, pro- a professional to apply it. And then the downside to that is it needs to be applied about every 28 days through the growing season of the summer when Bermuda grass is growing. So essentially what you do is you make the Bermuda grass sick, you keep it sick, and eventually you wear it out and it will die. And when I say eventually, you're probably looking at two to three growing seasons. Wow. So it's you got to be committed. It, it can it can work, but you have to be committed and you got to be willing to pay for it. So it's not an inexpensive endeavor there. Uh, on it. As far as goes to the nut sedge in tall fescue, um, the product sedge hammer, I believe, um, with with the sedge would would give you that. So look at sedge hammer. Uh, I believe that one's safe. Now some of its sisters uh, of that that chemistry are not safe on tall fescue, but I believe sedge hammer halosulfuron is the chemical there is safe on tall fescue. So important to read the labels on those. And so Barbara's got the problem of Bermuda unwanted and fescue. Some people have the opposite, some fescues creeping into the Bermuda. So if the two are left to their own devices, Clint, which one's going to win out, generally speaking? Well, it depends on the environment. If it's got plenty of sun, the Bermuda grass will win. Um, Bermuda grass likes sun. Tall fescue will certainly struggle in the summertime. Um, and if that's the case, you can wind up selectively putting out a material called like certainty. Um, and certainty will kill the tall fescue and leave the Bermuda grass behind uh, on it. So if you've got a nice sunny location, it gets hot, and it's probably a better environment for Bermuda grass. Mm-hmm. You know, in horticulture, we talk about right plant, right place. Yes. It applies to turf as well. So if you've got the right environment for Bermuda grass, select towards it, selectively take out the tall fescue. All right, Clint, we're, we're up against a break here. So, Barbara, thank you for the call. we got DJ up next. And I also want to know if anyone's ever given any thought to, to leaves, to remove or to leave. That is the question. So we're going to ask Clint what's best there. You're listening to Green and Growing right here on WSB. Just because still a slow dance in a rainstorm and a kiss from New the update on your weekend weather sponsored by Finley Roofing and welcome back to the show. I am joined by Clint Waltz, extension turf grass specialist from the University of Georgia and down on the Griffin campus. We are talking lawns and turf grass and good soil and all those kinds of things. So get your questions in for Clint at 404-872-0750. And uh, yeah, we've got some good calls. Are you ready to tackle a couple more? Let's see what we got. All right. Up next is DJ Indicator. Hey, welcome back, my friend DJ. How are you? Oh, good morning, Ashley. Hey, so what's um, going on? I, uh, I have centipede grass, and the lawn service says that because the roots grow parallel and close to the surface, I have weeds, but they don't know when they think that they, the, the weed control might kill the grass. And I just wanted to know what's the best products to use and when to use them to uh, control the weeds and fertilize the grass. Okay, good. Okay. 
that's an excellent question, and let's let's take the easy part of that right uh, first. And, and centipede and your lawn service is, is telling you right. Uh, centipede grass, it's purely stolen effort, so it only has uh, the stolons or the runners. Um, stolons and runners are the same thing. The runners are only above ground. There are no below ground runners with centipede grass. So those runners have to come across the soil. They have to tack down, and uh, you don't want to put out any herbicide, particularly a pre-emergence herbicide that may prevent those roots from tacking through the soil. So many of the pre-emergence herbicides that we use for crabgrass will actually prevent roots from tacking down through it, just like it will wind up kind of affecting the seedlings of, of weeds like crabgrass from coming up. So your, your lawn care service is, is telling you right. You're, you've got a good one there that's, that's telling you correct information. Yes. Um, now, as far as it goes with a, a herbicide for weed control in centipede grass, atrazine, anything that contains atrazine, so like Scott's Bonus S is one. Um, and I think I have seen on the shelf at Home Depot or Lowe's um, a, um, I think it's a 007 material um, with, with atrazine in it. Um, with it, and then I know I have seen here recently as well. There's a kind of a um, I can't remember what Spectricide or whom had it, but it was a uh, it had atrazine as well as some bifenthrin for insect control. It was a combination product that had uh, atrazine and bifenthrin in it. So both of those products or any of those kind of products would be good for centipede. The downside is you don't want to put any nitrogen out on centipede grass this time of year. Um, it's much too late to, to fertilize centipede with nitrogen this time of year. Um, on it that uh, as we're heading into dormancy, uh, centipede grass is slowing its growth, and the last thing you want to do is stimulate growth and have it young and tender and have it hit with uh, a frost uh, this time of year. So in, in your indicator, was that correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the last time he would have wanted to fertilize would have probably been somewhere about middle of August uh, was the last time that nitrogen needed to go on his centipede grass. Woo, centipede lawn, a little higher maintenance, but uh, DJ very familiar with that lawn. And you're right, Clint, it's so key to pick the right lawn care company that you can ask them questions and run these things that you hear on the show by them and make sure you're on the same page we'll stay tuned to the show here on green and growing 95.5 wsb going to continue the conversation this hour with clint waltz and then at seven o'clock we're joined by lance walheim garden expert from BioAdvanced. all that and more coming up on green and growing Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries on 95.5 WSB. Hey, thanks for tuning in today to Green and Growing. This is a special part of the show. You know who to expect. The Georgia gardener himself, Walter Reeves. Walter's wondering. Walter's wondering. The definitive questions and answers from WSB's OG garden guru, Walter Reeves. What an introduction that is. Hey, welcome. Yes. Welcome back to the show, Walter. How are you? Hey, Ashley. I'm great this morning. Good to talk to you. You too. So, you know, you've probably been paying attention to the show this morning, right? Oh, Clint was on before. Now, yeah, sure. I always want to learn more about lawns and lawn grasses and stuff like that. Clint's great. I'm so glad you've connected me with so many of the knowledgeable experts that you have, Clint included, and he's hanging tight for you and I to have a conversation here. But one of my top three things to do in the landscape this weekend, just to be out and about doing in the yard, is keeping the bird feeders stocked and putting out suet feeders just because it's high energy and the birds need that during the cold weather. 
And that's what you're going to talk to us about. I mean, I love when happy coincidences like that happen. I think there are some people who don't know what suet is. Suet is a hardened fat that you get from usually beef animals. And let's say in olden times, uh, people would buy suet and use it for cooking and things like that. But it came from an animal, and they could also learn that you could take suet and melt it with other things and feed the birds with it. Birds like it as well. So I couldn't find suet at the grocery store one day, and I was looking for something else to feed it instead. And I thought there's a recipe for how to make your own suet, but you don't have to necessarily have lard to do it. And this is going to be something that supplements their diet in addition to the bird seed that we keep out year-round, right? And it is insane how many birds love suet, how many come to the the feeder I have outside the window here in my sunroom, robins in in the spring and the uh, bluebirds in the wintertime. Gosh, the bluebirds love that suet. There's a reason why we do this in the cold weather, Walter, because like you're saying, if it's kind of a fat-based, it would be a terrible thing to put out in the summertime and it'd melt and go rancid and God knows what. Yeah. So is that why now is a appropriate time to be thinking about putting those suet feeders out? Exactly, exactly, because it's a good food source, energy source for the birds in the wintertime when they're cold, yeah. All right, well, tell us how to make it. I'm intrigued. It's actually pretty easy. A cup of shortening, you could get lard if you find lard at the grocery store, but I use shortening usually. A cup of peanut butter, oh boy, it smells so good when you put these in a saucepan and melt them together. Wow, it smells great all over the house. So a cup of shortening, a cup of peanut butter, and a cup of flour or cornmeal, something like that, to hold it together. Beyond that, sky's the limit. Raisins, peanuts, pecans, whatever you got that you think birds would like to eat. What I do with mine, frankly, is I have a cookie sheet with high sides on it, and I line it with waxed paper, and I pour the mixture in there. It's still hot, of course, because it melts it on the stove. And I pour it into the waxed paper and then let it cool. And then I can cut it into pieces that fit into my suet feeder, and I hang it outdoors. The birds just think it's great. In order to hold on to that hardened, almost brick of suet, we would need a special feeder, right? How how difficult or easy are those to find? The easiest find, I had one made, frankly. I made one that just perfectly fit the uh, cookie sheet thing that I, that I cool my suet mixture in. And I, so I made this feeder out of, I think, welded wires, pieces of wood, no big deal. I've got plans for it, by the way, on my website. Just type the word suet into walterese.com and see the plans for it. But I found that the squirrels could get into it, somehow they could get into it more easily and could pull the top of it more easily. (laughs) So, frankly, the store-bought suet feeders are like a dollar and a half. Go get one of those and put the suet in that. Make your own suet and save money that way, but then use the extra money you have to buy a commercial feeder. They work great. Great recipe. All right. So, Walter, go ahead and let folks know where to find that online in case they missed any of the ingredients. WalterReeves.com. Type the word suet in the search line and you will find it right there. And congratulations, the new revamped website, WalterReeves.com. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. It really, I'm so, so much fun. It looks so much better now. WalterReeves.com looks great. And it's always just as functional as ever. You know, in the upper yep. right hand corner, you've got that search feature. And like you yep. said, a, type just one or two keywords and you'll come up with. All the articles that you've posted over how many years? Oh, long, how long have I had that <laughs> website? Actually, it's been too long. It's lost in the midst of time. I do not remember how long I've had my website. How long I've, been, I've been putting stuff on there at least 15 years, since, at least. Since websites have been a thing, almost. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. When the first thing I, now, you know, I need to have my own website, walterese.com. That sounds good. <laughs> so. 
WalterReese.com. Well, hey, I've enjoyed it this morning. And next Saturday on the 28th, Walter, I look forward to you and I having a good conversation about composting. That's something that people oh, yeah. can get excited about and something new to try. Compost is alive. We'll talk about that. All right, cool. Well, have a good Saturday. You bet. And now back to your questions, 404-872-0750. And I'm joined by Clint Waltz, University of Georgia turf grass specialist, helping answer questions. Up next, we've got Cecil calling from Smyrna, Cobb County. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How's everybody there today? Really good. Better now that you're here. (laughs) Okay. I'd like to do a little further comment on garlic. Yeah, we talked Uh, about that in the show. Sure. You did. I am a winter gardener. And I run a few things uh, exotic, such as uh, purple broccoli, uh, golden cauliflower, frilly mustard, shards, lettuce, arugula, things like that. But uh, garlic, if anybody's interested, I plant my garlic on a five or six inch center, and I plant it about two and a half inches deep in uh, a good soil, sunny as you can get it. If you don't have space in your garden because it takes a long time to grow, it does. make that space. There is absolutely nothing like a fresh-picked garlic, and when you peel it, it is white as a brand-new apple off of a tree, and it just tastes divine. And do you do soft uh, neck or hard neck? I do both kinds. The top set makes that scape. The cloves themselves are a little bit bigger, but there's fewer of them. Yeah. And I do generally uh, mulch with a pine straw for weed control because there's nothing like an irritation of chickweeds and and other things that invade. And then that can be easily raked away. I don't use... uh, Wheat straw on that stuff, but pine straw. And Cecil, Uh, I want to ask you, as as a little bit of an expert here on garlic, because I've had some conflicting comments this morning from listeners. Some folks do prefer to wait until November when the soil temperatures are down just a little bit, maybe even early uh, December. But I suppose the earlier we do this, the sooner we'll get that harvest in April or May. So Cecil, thank you very much. Good information there. I'm excited to do it, and my producer Jason is planting garlic this weekend. We're both going to do it tomorrow, and then it's kind of going to be a race to the finish line. All right, up next is Perky in Alpharetta. Is that right? Yes, Ashley, it is. And I want to say right off the bat, I really appreciate the good work you do for the rest of us. Thank you. I I couldn't do it without experts like Clint, I tell you. I lean on these people (laughs) behind the scenes. He seems to know what he's talking about. (laughs) He sure does. Well, hopefully you've got a good grass question for him. It's so simple, I even hate to ask an expert like him. But anyway, I have two different grasses in my lawn. One is centipede and one is fescue. And I just heard you say 15 minutes ago that uh, my question is, should I fertilize each one of these grasses now? And already you all said that do, do not fertilize fescue. But how about centipede? No, actually, this is the prime time to fertilize mm-hmm. tall fescue. This yeah, is we when were tall saying, fescue needs to be fertilized. Yeah, the other caller, we said don't fertilize the centipede right now. Oh, Correct. do not for centipede. Right. Okay. Correct. Right. We, we break our grasses into two basic groups. One is a warm season grasses. That's when they do their growing. So centipede is a warm season species. So you want to fertilize it when the weather is hot and warm. Cool. Uh, then the other grouping we have are cool season grasses. And tall fescue is a cool season species. 
So make sure you have an irrigation system and you can kind of water that in because it, it needs to get worked into the soil. So, Clint, absolutely. And I mean, you know, for, for Perky and others to keep it straight to a, a good general rule of thumb, and, and no question is a dumb question, by the way, but a good general nope. rule of thumb, fertilizing anything when it's actively growing. Because if you fertilize at the wrong time and something's starting to go dormant or just shut down depending on the season, fertilizer is going to stimulate it to grow and kind of wake it up when it doesn't want to be awake. So yeah, general rule of thumb, fertilize when it's an active growth and fescue is coming on strong right now. Well, coming up, we've got Mike and Calhoun with a question about Bermuda grass and Clint Waltz stays with us from the University of Georgia. You're listening to Green and Growing on WSB. Thanks to Finley Roofing for sponsoring the weather update. Clint Waltz here to help me out. And now Mike and Calhoun. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Mike. Good morning, Ashley. Another great show. I always enjoy your Saturday morning. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm, I'm having a blast doing it. I'm not quite uh, the expert that 26-year-old host Walter Reeves was, but I'm, I'm having a blast. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Question. We have the Bermuda fescue fight going on in our yard. We've been told based on the, the sunlight we get, Bermuda is the way to go. So... The questions I have is we have to do some cutouts for landscaping this coming year and wondering what the best thing to do is I heard Roundup and just kill the grass where I want to do my cutouts or do Mm -hmm. I turn it in, do I cut the turf off? And then the other thing would be can can I overseed Bermuda to help it take over the fescue also? Okay, you got several questions there and um, none of them are simple answers. Um, <laughs> if you've got cutouts, <laughs> we, we've got and, the time. and maybe I make it okay. more complicated than I need to, <laughs> like the cutouts that you're talking about, depending on when you're looking to uh, actually take those cuts, I assume we're talking a cutouts where you will put in a, um, uh, a landscape bed or something along those lines. If you've got yeah. Bermuda in, gra- in that, now, now is actually a very good time to spray Bermuda grass with Roundup and actually kill it. Now, one application of Roundup on Bermuda grass isn't going to kill it. It's a very well-equipped plant for survival. So it will actually, because of its below-ground rhizomes, it takes multiple applications. But this time of year where the environmental cues are telling that plant to send all of its sugars and that kind of thing down into the root system, it'll take that Roundup with it, and you stand a better chance of killing those below-ground rhizomes. And, and the thing you have to remember about Roundup is it needs to go onto green tissue. So you don't want to take and scalp that down and take off the green tissue of that Bermuda grass if that's what you're trying to kill. You need that green tissue there to take that Roundup in. It's taken into the plant, and it's moved down and deep into the root system. So if you're trying to kill Bermuda grass in an area that you will plant ornamentals, now is a good time. And then um, let it kind of come back here in three to four weeks if it does before. Now, Calhoun's kind of north, so you'd likely get frost before we are. But if it starts to come back, hit it again a second time uh, with with Roundup or any other glyphosate-containing product. And um, can you overseed Bermuda grass? Well, to to thicken up the Bermuda grass, depends on what Bermuda grass you have. If it's one of our interspecific hybrids like Tifway or Tif Tough or something like that, the answer is no. Those grasses are actually sterile. They don't have viable seed. So the only way to propagate them would be through um, plant propagules like sod or sprigs or something like that. So you can't really interseed or, or uh, overseed Bermuda grass. Now, if you have an old common Bermuda grass that was seeded to begin with and it wasn't sodded, then yes, you could. So you kind of need to know which Bermuda grass you have. If it's relatively new and it was sodded, odds are good it's one of our hybrids that is sterile and you wouldn't want to, to seed Bermuda grass into that because it'll look different. It'll have a different color and leaf texture and growth habit to it uh, on it. Do you know what kind you Did have, miss- Mike? I do not. This was, uh, it was all fescue about five to ten years ago, 
and over time the Bermudas from the other neighbors and things like that have gotten in, okay. you know, birds and things uh, like that, I imagine. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, then it probably is a seeded one, and yes, you could then seed in a um, an improved Bermuda grass seeded type. Uh, so something other like Riviera or um, Arden 15 would be one. Um, Rio, I think, is one, uh, and seems like there's another one. I'm that's uh, escaping me right now. Jimmy, I, buff, I, I, I have those in the spring much better because that's when you would seed Bermuda grass would be in the spring of the year, not this time of year. Okay, and so the stuff that you said uh, a while back, the different chemical to put on it to kill the fescue, and then I would seed it in the spring with yes. whatever one of those I could find. Right. Okay. Get back in touch with me in awesome. spring. We'll see what some of our newer ones are then. But if you want to selectively take tall fescue out of Bermuda grass, uh, the herbicide Certainty, uh, yep. the chemical name in that is sulfur sulfurod. But Certainty it will do a really nice job of, um, of uh, selectively taking tall fescue out of Bermuda grass. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Some really thoughtful questions there. And Clint, sadly, we have to part ways. It's time to take a break. It's been so full of great information, and I look forward to having you back on the show soon. So my pleasure. Happy to do it, Ashley, and I always enjoy time with you. My friend, you're welcome back anytime. Almost 7 o'clock, and I hope you'll join me for hour number two of Green and Growing right here on WSB. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.